Welcome to the War in Ukraine Update from Kyiv podcast. I'm Jessica Ganawa, a lecturer in international relations at Flinders University in Australia, and I'm talking today with Ivan Quisht. Ivan is a research fellow at the Estonian Foreign Policy Institute and a doctoral candidate at the University of Tartu in Estonia. Ivan focuses in his work on Russian foreign policy as well as politics in the North Caucasus, including a particular focus on paradiplomacy and territorial autonomy. Thanks for joining me on the podcast today, Ivan. Thank you for having me. We're going to talk in the podcast today about the North Caucasus region. So could you first of all just give a bit of context for listeners? What are we talking about when we talk about the North Caucasus? Certainly. The North Caucasus is a indeed a, a very peculiar part of Russia when looking at the entire map of the Russian Federation and thinking of all its uh, constituent uh, national minorities, Tatars, Chubash, the Yakut. The North Caucasus stands out because of its great diversity in just in pure numerical terms. The North Caucasus is uh, the southernmost part of Russia. It is a part that is highly mountainous. That's the Caucasus mountain range. And it features a great deal of diversity in ethnic terms, in linguistic terms, and cultural terms. So it's been a part of the of the Federation that Moscow and St. Petersburg before it ever since it's been part of Russia, has struggled in ways to either govern it uh, in general, or at least to impose the same type of ways to govern than the rest of the Russian Federation. This is part of the reason why today we see politics in the region kind of stand out. I'm thinking of Ramsam Kadyrov, who is kind of a well-known figure internationally, but not only that. Mm -hmm. You mentioned Kadyrov there from Chechnya. And of the, I believe, seven republics of the North Caucasus, probably two of the most prominent are those of Chechnya and Dagestan. Could you give a bit of an overview of the context of tensions between Chechnya and Dagestan and the central Russian government that have existed? It's indeed a, a complex topic that stretches in well into the 19th century, if not even before. But I think a, a good place to start is, is, is to take it back to the federal state. Russia is a, is a federation. And it's an asymmetrical federation. So different regions have different rights, essentially. Now, of course, under Putin, it's been become much more homogenous. But the exception remains the North Caucasus. When it comes to the North Caucasus, we have Chechnya and, and Dagestan as two very peculiar regions, even more so, even within the North Caucasus. Chechnya, because of Kadyrov, who is the son of Ahmad Kadyrov, a former warlord that was elevated by Moscow in, into being the it's even hard to characterize. It's the, the pre, officially the president of, of the Chechen Republic, which is the government, the pro-Russian government that Moscow installed following the Second Chechen War in the year 2000. He already assumed an official role in collaboration with Moscow. And then on, on the other hand, we have Dagestan, that is a, a very peculiar region even within the North Caucasus because of its very wide range of cultural and linguistic groups, even more so than, than Chechnya and other parts of the of the country, really. Officially, Dagestan has 14 titular nationalities. And by titular, I mean the way Chechnya is the Republic of the Chechens and so on and so forth. In Dagestan, there's no Dagestani people, but there's 14 official nationalities. Some would argue, however, that there are many, many more. 
I've seen some lists that would include six up to 60 different groups. So the point is, it's a very diverse region, and that makes it very hard to govern. Because even though we've had decades, if not centuries, of Russification, a lot of people speak Russian, there is still a lot of people on, only speak their local language. And also, there's no kind of unifying idea of Dagestan. So that makes it also very peculiar. So in Chechnya, we have kind of a post-war situation that involves a government imposed by Moscow. And in Dagestan, we have a, an area that's kind of inherently hard to govern because of its diversity. The tension, I think, it's in a way, when, it, when speaking only about the last 20 years, I think it's a good place to start to think that there's no tension between the Chechen government and Moscow, and no tension between the Dagestani government and Moscow. Because Ultimati Kadeov, he, he was installed by Moscow, well, his father, and then the son was kept in the same trajectory on Putin's kind of supervision. And then in Dagestan, it's been always a region very hard for Moscow to govern. So ever since Putin has been in power, the federal government has had the ability to parachute in governors that make their best effort to actually impose uh, federal policy. When it comes to the population, when in Chechnya, listeners may know Chechnya was a de facto state, de facto independent in the 1990s. And today it's hard to gauge to what extent people would like to go back to being independent. The experience of two very bloody and very destructive wars kind of deters people. On the other hand, there's no doubt in, in the minds of people in Chechnya that the Kadyrov regime is, uh, lacks any legitimacy. It's essentially an occupation regime in, in uh, many ways. And uh, when it comes to Dagestan, I think it's harder to characterize because there the government is does not have this lack of legitimacy to the same extent. It's still seen as, it's definitely not seen as democratic and it's definitely not seen as it's a true federal system. So a lot of people in Dagestan would actually advocate more, not for independence, like some people might do in Chechnya, but more for a re-federalization of the country. Mm-hmm. That's really interesting. About a week ago, on Wednesday, the 21st of September, Putin announced this quote-unquote partial military mobilization. How big of a shockwave did you think that would send through the Russian domestic polity? I think we're slowly starting to get uh, an idea of of the implications that this decision to, to mobilize the Russian population to join the armed forces and the invasion of Ukraine. Because, yeah, it's called a partial mobilization, but there's no real document that kind of suggests that it won't be a much larger, that it won't really reach out, reach to most uh, of the population. Ever since the day following the the mobilization order, we've seen accounts and, and reports and everything surfacing from Russia saying, showing how, in many places, how brutally this order has been pursued by authorities throughout the Russian Federation. So I think the real impact will become visible as the mobilization unfolds and its true dimensions become better known. Some accounts have already suggested that it won't be 300,000 like the Minister of Defense announced, but it will be many, many more people. Mm -hmm. We saw protest breaking out in various places across Russia. Within Dagestan, there seemed to be a, a fair amount of unrest Some analysts were saying, well, you know, maybe we're actually seeing the beginning of some kind of breakdown of that federal system in Russia. You know, are we going to see some republics actually wanting to to break away? Are we going to see separatist movements getting stronger? 
are we going to see some kind of internal civil conflict in Russia? What's your take on that? It's early to tell when it comes to the broader picture. No doubt this will put a lot of pressure into the, the entire Putin system that has been ruling Russia for over two decades now. puts a, a tremendous pressure on it because it's a system that has been premised on demobilizing people, making them apolitical, disengaged from, from the way the country is ruled, and to essentially just focus on, on their own lives. When it comes to North Caucasus specifically, there's been kind of thinking about mobilization. Their mobilization has been one of the places where it has been carried out quite ag aggressively and with a lot of coercion. And of course, people are resisting and very openly expressing their uh, unhappiness about the mobilization and with the war uh, as well. Now, of course, many people see the North Caucasus as this kind of fraying edge of the empire that is so far away from Moscow that the, the federal government has little control there. I believe, however, that, that the federal government indeed depends a bit on its intermediaries to, to rule the North Caucasus on kind of co-opting local elites and keeping them playing by, by rules that Moscow ultimately imposes. That's definitely the case, not only in, in Dagestan, but also other places. And I think this system has worked quite efficiently to, for Moscow to attain what it wants from the North Caucasus, which is uh, stability. And again, the, the mobilization puts all that system into tremendous stress because these intermediaries, they don't have all the coercive mechanisms that are at the disposal of the federal government. So this is why we've seen uh, actually Putin asking Kadyrov, the Chechen leader, to intervene in Dagestan and to repress the Dagestani protesters with his own kind of private army. So I think my fear is that mobilization in the North Caucasus will create a new cycle of violence in the region. Because the, the repression that is involved in this mobilization process will lead people to defend themselves, to resist, to act against it. And this will prompt a, a coerc uh, coercive response and create a cycle of, of violence. Now, how well will that violence articulate and become kind of, a, kind of a collective acts of resistance? It's hard to tell. There's some evidence suggesting where it will go. I think it's more certain that it won't go into the separatism we saw in the 1990s, and will very likely not go in the direction of the uh, extremist violence that we saw in the 2000s. There is some evidence that it is taking a more civic dimension right now, of advocating for control of the of executive power, for the respect of human rights, and for uh, the upholding of, an, of a real federal system. It's Quite early to tell where where all this will take the the North Caucasus, but I am I, I remain hopeful that the outcome will be will be peaceful in, in some way. Um, but that said, again, mobilization and the war puts everything under tremendous stress, so it's it's hard to tell what will ultimately how, what will be the ultimate uh, outcome of all this. Mm -hmm. That's right, and I mean it was interesting that you said that in some ways what Putin has been trying to do for the last decade or so is to demobilize parts of the population. That seemed kind of surprising to me that Putin is sort of upsetting this fragile balance between different constituencies in the Russian domestic context, and I don't think it's so much the protesters for for civil and political rights that he's necessarily so concerned about or that are going to ultimately might bring an end to his regime. But this mobilisation could impact the way in which that sort of majority bulk of the population who have been supportive of Putin for a couple of decades view Putin and the way that they view his decision making. 
Or do you think that this would also just become another decision that that population would kind of feel, you know, must have a reason behind it or, you know, Putin must know what he's doing? That is a very good question. And I think it is one that we should all kind of be attentive for, for the coming weeks and months. Because I, I think kind of there's polling and there's kind of the numbers that polls taking place in Russia, relatively trustworthy polls that suggest one thing and another. I think what will be more consequential or when it comes to contestation of, of the war in general and in particular to mobilization will be to see what how protests go from relatively isolated events to actual organized civil resistance and actual or, uh, collective action. Because the, there's been many var- barriers throughout Russia's history, really, for kind of grassroots collective action to take place and to change the course of politics in, in the country. We can think of examples where that, that indeed happened, but uh, generally the type of kind of civil society that has been promoted internationally there has found many barriers. And today that, that lack of disposition to collective action is, is kind of missing. I think the thing to look out for is how mobilization will push different constituents and different interest groups and different already existing organizations and ultimately the population to organize and create coalitions to contest Putin's policies and, and the war and the mobilization in particular. I think the North Caucasus is an interesting place to look at because there's already been a background of resistance to the to the central government. But whatever happens there, it's in a way a part of a bigger story of, of Russia right now. And I think any kind of countrywide movement that resists the war will have to take the North Caucasus into consideration. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much, Ivan. I really appreciate you being with me on the podcast today and shedding some light on these issues. Thank you so much for inviting me. I was very happy to join you. Thanks for listening and thanks to Mr. Smith for our theme music.